0: Hello and welcome to Atlantic Fellows Conversations, I'm Fanula Sweeney. Each year at the end of January, the City of Bangkok is host to the Prince Mahadol Award Conference known as PMAC, an international conference which focuses on policy-related health issues. The co-hosts range from the Prince Mahadol Award Foundation to Thailand's Ministry of Public Health, the Rockefeller Foundation and the World Health Organization, among other key related partners. The theme of the 2020 conference was Accelerating Progress Towards Universal Health Coverage, and among those participating were several Atlantic Fellows. Tala Al-Rusan is an Atlantic Fellow for Equity in Brain Health. A Jordanian doctor, she lives and works in San Diego, California, and is committed to the welfare of refugees, more than half a million of whom are hosted by Jordan. Anna Santos is a journalist in the Philippines with a particular interest in reproductive rights. She's also an Atlantic Fellow for Health Equity in Southeast Asia. Both women took part in a side meeting at PMAC on the topic Accelerating Universal Healthcare Coverage to Include Refugees, the Middle Eastern Experience. Afterwards, I caught up with both women to find out more.
1: It went really well. And surprisingly, I felt that the audience was pretty engaged. And I did not expect this part of the world to know much about the Syrian crisis and what's happening in the Middle East. But actually, I was very pleased by the reaction of the audience.
0: We'll get into a little more detail about your presentation. But Anna, as a journalist, you are moderating this panel. Did you find any resonances from across the panelists, particularly on the subject of universal health coverage in the region and beyond?
2: Definitely. First of all, I think the first point that resonated with everyone in the audience was how these groups, which is children from suffering from online sexual exploitation, refugees, and the LGBT community, how we think of universal health care, but these groups are overlooked. We don't include them in conversations enough. And what I also liked earlier was it was also about we need to feel more about what these communities are going through. Tal- brought us to this exercise of imagining what it's like to be a refugee and imagining the needs that would arise from being in that
0: situation. And I
2: thought that was extremely powerful in creating that point of resonance.
0: Because of course, Tali, you do research into the effects of displacement on refugees in Syria. Can you give us a summary of the impact on people who have been forced to leave their homes under very dangerous circumstances and relocate somewhere else in a country such as Jordan but with no expectation of where their lives might take them.
1: The research that we do is very much public health focused, so we focus on the human experience behind displacement. We try to shed light on the migration process. Addressing an audience like today's, which is very multidisciplinary, very global, I had to take an approach that's very much general. And during today's presentation, I was trying to find the commonalities across different cultures and different parts of the globe. There's a lot in common. So the research that I shared today was just a snapshot of what we do using mixed method designs, where we listen to the people using qualitative methods, sitting down, focus groups, discussions, and quantitative. So I was just trying to tell the audience that there are research methods that can be scientifically proven and engage people who are marginalized.
0: For you, why is there a particular interest in refugees? Obviously, you're Jordanian, so one, I think there is a link here. Jordan is a very hospitable country. But what sparked your desire to do research into the lives of some refugees in Zaatari camp in particular? My mother is a refugee from Palestine.
1: Most of Jordan's population are either from a refugee background or married someone with a refugee background. So really the identity of the population in Jordan is very much about being open to refugees. It's in every family. It's in the DNA of this country. Plus, growing up in Jordan and wanting to be a doctor, you have to think of how you can provide services to refugees because, again, they're a majority in the country.
0: So if you're a refugee in Syria... What access do you have to health care? How does it differ for those who are Jordanian citizens?
1: We have done research in Jordan, it was the first to show that the differences are very, very obvious between those who live in camps versus those who live outside camps. And for Syrian refugees, the majority, about 85% of refugees live outside camps. Very different demographics, very different populations, very different health services that are being provided to both cohorts of refugees. So those that are inside the camps are governed by the UNHCR, the United Nations Higher Commissioner for Refugees, while those who live outside are completely governed by the Ministry of Health in Jordan and the NGOs. So universal health care is really the law that goes in Jordan when it comes to health care of everybody, refugees or not. But those who live in camps are subject to UNHCR services and the NGOs they work with. And
0: is there a difference in standard? Yes, actually,
1: I was just describing to the audience today the process that Jordan went through when it comes to health policies for refugees. So at the beginning, we were offering health care for free for refugees for about three years from Syria until the country could not do it anymore. The country ran out of resources and it became very costly to pay for everything, especially tertiary healthcare where they're needing surgeries and very advanced chronic condition treatments. So those who are outside are struggling in understanding these policies because these policies tend to change from time to time. Hospitals that offer subsidized healthcare access to refugees are limited and they're very dependent on what's happening with other NGOs that are partnering with the Jordanian government when it comes to refugees. Those who are inside the camps are completely governed by the UNHCR. The UNHCR has a very clear policy, has certain hospitals in the Zaatari refugee camp that offer services to everyone in the camp.
0: Anna, in the Philippines, there's been major legislation passed for universal health care coverage. Could you explain for the listener just how momentous that is, but also what still has to be achieved?
2: So we passed the universal health care law last year, and that in itself was a landmark achievement in terms of being able to cover all Filipinos. We're a population of about 104 million people. With basic access to healthcare. When you think about the number of Filipinos, it's about 25%, so about 25 million, who wouldn't have access to healthcare because they're extremely poor or in isolated areas. You now have a law that mandates the state to find ways to protect them, building up that system. Now, that in itself is very idealistic and great to have on paper. The more immediate things that the government needs to address is funding all of that. But secondly, when you think about universal healthcare and what it means, universality, which is what you were bringing up, Talib, means everyone. And that means drilling down to the populations that you may not normally think of, right? You think of the elderly, the pregnant mothers, all of that, that's top of the line. But then you have populations, and I'll speak specifically just for the Philippines, the ones affected by natural disaster, what happens to them, the children who are victims of online sexual exploitation. The problem is approached through law enforcement. But as they're rescued, you realize that they need long-term support in terms of trauma-informed care. Where is that? Where is that in universal health care? Those things need to be talked about. What's good about the law also is there's a provision about building health data and data systems. So I hope that's something that can be really worked on in terms of disaggregating data and identifying the communities that need help and the kind of support that they need.
0: Do you think that this new law, while great in theory, is going to be able to be implemented in practice for everyone?
2: Yes, it will be, but it will take a lot of lobbying still. It will take a lot of vigilance on the part of health activists and civil society to keep the budgets there at an adequate level so that it fulfills its mandate to cover the population that it is supposed to cover.
0: Can you give us an example of how it might affect an average person going about their day-to-day lives? The basic health
2: care coverage of the Philippines is called PhilHealth. That is Philippine health insurance. So you have to pay a small premium to be covered by that. And it's about $8 a month. But when you think about earning capacity, $300 a month is the normal minimum wage. That's a lot if you have to think about the family that you need to support as well. Now, when you think about making this free now for everyone or managing that amount, that's something that you give it as a level of security. And also, we know that when you have to live on a certain salary level, If you don't have medical insurance, any kind of sickness can set you back a few months, a few weeks, and contribute to you not being able to uplift yourself and your family out
0: of poverty. And the worry of that, presumably the stress of that, has an impact on mental health as well. And. That would be applicable, I guess, in the refugee camps too. Definitely, definitely.
1: And now listening to Anna, I can only think of climate refugees, which is a big issue now in Southeast mm-hmm. Asia and all over the world. I can't help but think of the criminalities as well. So mental health is a big threat in both scenarios, climate refugees as well as violence and war crimes.
0: It's not just physical health; it's the living environment around one, and by that I mean things like sewage, clean water.
2: That was also something that was discussed in the forum today. Healthcare interventions are not just health-based. Dr. Derit was one of the reactors. He's a former DOH secretary. He said that in a community in the Philippines that's geographically isolated, they found that one of the problems was chronic diarrhea, and apart from treating it medically they also improve the sewage system. And you had something about this as well, Tyler, right? Yes. A non-medical intervention yes. in the camps that would improve not just quality of life, but also health care. Very true, Anna. and I was touching on housing situations.
1: So at the beginning of the camps, or the founding of Zatari refugee camp, they had caravans that are made of cloth. They had tents, basically. And then people were dying because of extreme weather in the desert, as you can imagine. UNHCR then replaced those tents with caravans that are made of cardboard. So public health is all about these social determinants of health that include housing,
0: that include sewage, that include climate. How much of the challenge is attitudes, approaches to this, how much of it is financial? I think it's a very, very
1: big challenge. And today it was brought also in the panel, the doctor from Indonesia, he pointed that exact point out, which is what is the role of the global community of those big major philanthropists that control most of the world's money when it comes to these marginalized populations? And why aren't they stepping up their game and doing what they're supposed to? So actually, he ended that panel on a very high note saying, "Okay, now we know the problems. We have these brilliant minds in the room. We have these activists from all over the world. How can we
2: move forward with solutions?
0: So how can we? I look at you, Anne, I don't expect you to have the answer, but where do you think the next steps are?
2: The panelists brought forth how it must feel for these marginalized groups, and I thought that was a really important starting point. These are three very diverse groups, refugees, online sexual exploited children, and LGBT communities, so diverse, but bringing it to that level of being able to understand what the issues are within those groups. Second, there were many interventions that people were bringing about. When you think about solutions, one was how everything needs to be on a sustainable level. The refugee crisis, there's no end to it inside. So how are we going to plan for a response for a crisis that has an indefinite period? That's one. And then also about thinking of innovative ways of addressing this, whether it's crowdsourcing, it's pressuring the philanthropy community to step up their game and to pressure development partners to own up to their responsibilities for issues that are not politically sexy. Mm-hmm. Supporting refugee health care is very controversial. It's not easy to dive into that and say, for a donor, I'm going to support that. I'll give you my 100%. Same thing with the LGBT community.
0: So it's shifting the narrative.
2: Yes, it is definitely shifting the narrative. We have a moral obligation to one another. And that's putting that on the table and pushing philanthropy and donors towards that as well. The last thing I wanted to bring up was there should also be care for the activists. This is a long marathon. Yes. And there needs to be support as well for the activists Maybe through a community of support where we can have conversations like this and just talk about what we need to support one another to make each person feel like this cause is something that we can support and get behind. And at the same time, on an individual level for self-care.
0: So that activists aren't working alone or feeling the pressure of working alone and feeling isolated, as it's very easy to do. Ladies, we'll leave it there, but thank you both very much. I hope you found that you have come away aware not only of the challenges, but resolved in your purpose to keep things moving.
2: Thank you for having thank
0: us. So and that was Atlantic Fellow for Health Equity in Southeast Asia, Anna Santos, and Atlantic Fellow for Equity and Brain Health, Tala al speaking to me during the annual PMAC conference in Bangkok, Thailand. To find out more about the Atlantic Fellows, please visit www.atlanticfellows.org. You've been listening to Atlantic Fellows Conversations. I'm Fanula Sweeney.